we're going to just rattle through uh, a few thoughts around anxiety for the next 20 minutes and uh, have some time for some questions a little afterwards. First thing to say is um, you've all been plugged into an adrenal drip for the last 12 months. So if you're feeling a little bit on edge, um, that's very normal. Interestingly, with the team uh, of psychiatrists and psychologists at, at Minus Soul, we're discussing this week about how some of the things that are symptomatic of anxiety problems in normal time are just a normal reflection of our current circumstances in our current time. So some things that we might say are problematic um, and would require further investigation in normal time are just really a byproduct of what it looks like to have been walking through a global pandemic for a year in positions of responsibility. So I just want you all to be kind of gentle with yourselves tonight. Um, try and sort of acknowledge the fact that you've been through something incredibly traumatic um, and the responsibility of leadership compound uh, the anxiety that you will feel as you try and carry the burdens of people in your care. Let's have a think about a few strategies around anxiety typically. Um, some of the things we know don't work when it comes to anxiety. And um, I was just going to share a few slides with you. One of the first ones is this idea of um, actually what doesn't work. And um, we think about anxiety in terms of systemology. Let's see if I can get this one up for you. Um, you have this idea of three core life systems. Um, so you've got productivity and recovery and security. And these three systems, if you like, cover what it is to be human. If you like meerkats like me, you might have seen these guys hanging around in London Zoo. Um, the productive ones, uh, thanks Alice. The productive ones are busy looking for grubs in the ground or they're, uh, you know, they're, they're engaging in play-based activity. And the recovery ones are either eating or sleeping. In every meerkat colony, you've got two sentinels. They normally stand on top of the colony. And uh, what, what they're about is making sure the colony is safe and secure. And um, that's really, oh, that's weird. I've got a little double screen going on there. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why. Um, what's really, really important about that is that when the sentinels squeak, all of the inhabitants of the meerkat colony all act. So there's something called a priority of security in the meerkat colony. So it doesn't matter whether you're asleep or whether you're in activity, a productive activity like uh, eating or um, hunting, uh, you are going to disappear down into the bottom of the burrow. And what you all need to be aware of with regard to your own anxiety system is that it also has preeminence in your human systems. So it doesn't matter whether you're working or whether you're sleeping or whether you're eating, if you're getting uh, an adrenal response, an anxiety response, it's going to dominate your experience. It's going to dominate your worldview. So <clears throat> an encouragement there, if you like, um, to think about the no normality of anxiety in your experience and acknowledge that actually you know, what you're going through at the moment means that the, the preeminence of your security system is really dominating your event window. Going through a global pandemic means you're going to be more wired, you're going to experience more adrenaline, you're going to be a more wired to threat and therefore more jumpy. And you might well have noticed that your eating habits have changed, that your sleep has been uh, exhausting. Even if you slept for longer, you've woken up feeling really, really tired. Or you may have had fitful sleep or your dreams have become more intense. So typically we see a change uh, in the way in which we rest when we're going through an adrenal phase. But 
The adrenal cycle is only meant to run for about 15 minutes. It's a fight or flight response. If a bear appears in the woods, you um, get a surge of adrenaline and cortisol to your bloodstream that uh, draws blood away from your extremities towards your heart. Your pupils dilate so you can see better. And then your main muscle groups are fueled up with, with energy to run really fast or perform a superhuman task. What you aren't wired for is 12 months of experiencing an adrenal drip. And so a lot of what we're seeing now uh, amongst the whole, you know, <laughs> the whole nation, but particularly amongst leaders in positions of responsibility, you know, is an, an adrenalized exhaustion. Is actually just feeling so tired. And, and I'd want to say to you all as Christian leaders, that this is particularly difficult for you and for us, collectively myself as a priest, because we, we believe that we should be doing more than we are doing. So we feel high level responsibility. We also look back at the last 12 months and believe we've been doing less than we used to do for many of us. So we feel like we've been at home or we've been within the context of our you know, particular environ. And therefore, we should feel better than we do. And again, I'd, I'd kind of question that and say, actually, that's not really how this process works. Yes, prayer makes a difference, of course. And of course, God fuels us by his spirit and feeds us through his word and sacrament. No doubt about that. But let's be really realistic as leaders about our actual physiological and psychological experience. And the danger of spiritualizing our experience of adrenaline is that, is that we, again, we brutalize ourselves by assuming that we should be having a different human experience to the one we were actually experiencing. And that, that often aligns with mental health stigma, which says, it's okay for me to be physically unwell, then I'll take tablets or I'll address the issue with support. But if I'm struggling with my emotions, somehow I should be better than that, or God should rescue me from that reality. So I, I'd, I'd ask you to sort of take care um, when spiritualizing. Um, you will have all heard, you know, the, sort of the Christian ideals in, in action, we shorten uh, the scripture to say, you know, the, the 11th commandment is do not worry. Jesus says, not do not worry, but do not catastrophize. If you see the verse in context, in Matthew 6, 34, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Today has enough problems of its own. And um, worry and anxiety, worry is a cognitive, elaborative process. What that means is it's a thought process which elaborates on threat. So you begin to worry, you elaborate on the initial threat and create a whole schema of threat. Um, whereas, interestingly, uh, curiosity is also a cognitive elaborative process, but it often finds good things. <laughs> but worry often finds threats. And Jesus is not saying don't worry about today or address the issues of today. He's saying don't catastrophize, don't allow yourself to fall into a cognitive elaborative process. There are three failed strategies as far as worry is concerned. The first one is just not worrying. Um, I'm sure if you are a worrier and you've got a spouse or a friend who uh, is not a natural worrier, uh, they will say things, well, just don't worry about it. And you'll say, well, don't you think I've tried that one before? Um, if it was really that easy just to not worry about it, honestly, it wouldn't actually be a worry. It would just be a mild intrusive thought. Worry by its very nature is persistent and problematic and this is uncomfortable, but it's also dispositional. There are worriers and largely non-worriers, and that is a genetic reality which isn't really your fault. Second negative response or failed response is what we call answering every worry. So you wake up in the night with a headache, 
you suddenly think that you might have a brain tumor, so you jump out of bed and you go to good Dr. Google. You ask Dr. Google how you're doing, and Dr. Google offers you 57 different diagnoses, including the bubonic plague. And uh, of course, you don't sleep for the next three hours because you're imagining your mortality and you're making yourself right with the Lord. Uh, and then you doze off to sleep at about three in the morning, only to wake up feeling absolutely fine and wondering why you spent most of your night in emotional agony. We know that answering worries doesn't help to reduce worries. It only helps to propagate more worry. The problem isn't the worry itself. The problem is the fact that you're worrying. So it's remembering that you're using a cognitive elaborative process and the process is more important than the product. The process propagates worries. Actually, undoing that process doesn't begin and end by answering the worries and finding reassurance. Reassurance is the addiction of the worrier. And uh, we do it in very subtle ways, particularly priests. We find someone who's got a similar condition that we're concerned about. We ask them how they're doing and work out what their prognosis is. And we pretend to pastorally care for them whilst we're actually deeply relieved that what they've got and what we've got look very different. So, you know, we find ways of reassuring ourselves that actually, you know, we're okay. And often those can look caring. They aren't always as caring as they look. We also have uh, a temptation to suppress our thoughts. And um, thought the, the sort of three evils in psychology are suppression, repression, and denial. Um, these are all methods of pushing away the thing that we're uncomfortable with. And the interesting thing about this is our reflexive response is always stronger than our initial response. So I want you all not to think about the Archbishop of Canterbury just for this few moments. So I've made it prohibitive. Of course, you're all imagining him at this very moment. And for as long as it's prohibitive to think about the Archbishop of Canterbury, you will think about the Archbishop of Canterbury. Because if I say, no, you are absolutely free to think about whatever you want right now. I've removed the prohibition, and therefore you'll think about all sorts of other things, hopefully some of the things I'm talking to you about. So prohibition does not reduce your anxiety, increases it. That's why you've got to be very careful about trying to push thoughts down with, yeah, thanks, Alison. I'm sure you're enjoying the meerkat still. But um, prohibition as in do not worry, doesn't actually let you worry less, it makes you worry more. So be aware of thought suppression. How can we then deal with the reality of our worries? Well, well the key thing is initially in, in a process of, of appraisal labeling. Now, I want you to think about this idea in terms of two sorts of worry. So um, I'm going to give you this uh, idea in, in this, this image. So I want you to think about two sorts of worry, solvable worry and floating worry. So I'm going to suggest to you that 90% of all the things you worry about are not going to come true. In fact, more than that, 99.9% .9 of all the things you're actually worrying about won't come true. Um, the number of things that are necessary for you to think about are, in the left-hand arrow, the solvable problems. Now, these are time-limited they are worries that would be real to a friend, not just real to you. Uh, and they tend to respond or resolve through problem-solving strategies. So if I told you you're going to lose your job, that's a real problem to worry about. And you do well to apply problem-solving strategies to finding a new job. Floating worries account for the 99% of the things that we worry about, but that never happen. So the first activity we need to undertake in the process, if you like, of oh, my screen's gone weird again. Uh, 
in the process of addressing anxieties is to actually label our worries, to label the worries as either floating or solvable. If we have a, a floating worry, which are the ones we're going to address, if we have a solvable worry, for example, as I said, about losing your job, you need to apply problem-solving strategies to that. But actually, that, that is fruitful, as in you make progress when you apply problem-solving strategies to a solvable problem. What you don't make headway with is resolving floating worries by applying problem-solving techniques. So Bob comes to me at church. He says, Will, I'm really worried because I don't think anyone really likes me. Bob's worried that no one really likes him. Now, that's a floating worry. If I said to Bob, OK, Bob, look, you come up to the pulpit today and I'll ask everyone. So I say to everyone, look, here's Bob. He's worried that no one likes him. Who likes Bob? Well, everyone's going to put up their hand. Um, and, and is Bob going to feel any better about that reality? Well, no, he'll just say, well, I think all Christians are liars. And uh, he'll have to get down from the pulpit. And then he'll be even more concerned about life. The fact is you can't apply problem-solving techniques to floating worries because they're not really about what they appear to be about. We normally worry in themes. So you might worry in health, finances, relationships, position, sometimes very existential worries, and sometimes faith-orientated worries. They tend to group together, but largely they're things that hover in our minds and, and don't come easily into the light. You'll always know you've got a floating problem when you're thinking the same thing over and over and over again, and you get temporary relief, but no long-term relief. So these tend to be reflexive. They sometimes tend to be obsessive. They're always uncomfortable, and they're always intrusive. And I would call floating worries either ants or gnats, whichever you like least. So automatic negative thoughts or negative automatic thoughts. And ants punctuate your unconscious. They arrest you with a fear of, oh, oh no, what if? They can nearly always be precursed by what if. So ask yourself, what are the general ants that you experience today? Now, the danger of trying to squash ants is that if you get busy squashing ants, you'll just find more of them. And so you can get into a process of trying to crush these intrusive, worried thoughts, these automatic negative thoughts. And as a result, you only propagate more of them. What we have to be doing is really good at labeling and recognizing that we are biologically dispositioned to believe that our worries are realistic, even when we know that they aren't. What we need to know is how we respond to those ants in a way that gives ourselves more peace? How can we find more peace? And the acrostic I would use is the idea that so often fear, the fear that we experience when we have an intrusive, automatic, negative thought is, is actually false. It's false evidence appearing real. And in our worldview, people typically believe their emotions more than they should. Now, I believe emotions are incredibly important they're like taking the temperature of our experiences. But actually, the experience we often have with adrenaline is it's precursive and hypersensitive because it's much more risky to ignore a threat than it is to find a threat where there is no threat. So think about that just for a minute. If you were dispositioned to ignore threats, you actually wouldn't survive very long. So it's best biologically to identify more threats even when there aren't any threats because if you miss one, you haven't really lost anything. But if you have missed one and there was one, then you could potentially be run over by a bus. 
So what you need to do is identify the reality that you're more likely to see problems where there are no problems than you are to see no problems when there are problems. If you like, we are all hypervigilant, and that hypervigilance is absolutely exacerbated by a period of stress. So the more stressed you are, the more highly tuned your adrenal system is, therefore the more you are likely to see risk. So you might have found yourself over the last 12 months feeling more anxiety than you normally would because your anxiety dial has been turned up significantly because you've been living under risk. So whilst you might be nervous about COVID, you've probably found all sorts of associated risks or even disassociated risks that have caused you a high level of anxiety. So think about this in terms of what worry actually does then before we come into land. Worry makes you feel like you're doing something important, even caring. So worry is a habit, it's not a solution. And if you think about applying worry frameworks to solve to floating problems, it's really nothing more than twiddling your thumbs psychologically. It, very rarely, if ever, does anyone get any real relief from a floating worry by worrying about it. Normally, if you think about the last floating worry you had, you just got slightly exhausted and it stopped feeling important to you. So no one has a eureka moment when they worry and go, oh yeah, now I've sorted that out. Instead, you get to a point where it just seems to edit out of your psyche. And that's because you've done something called habituation. You've basically got so used to the thing that you're worrying about, that your brain has realized it's not a threat on its own and it's given up worrying. But what the worry hasn't done is make the threat go away. It's just, it just doesn't work. It hasn't worked for you because worry doesn't work quite like that. There was a guy who used to live on our street uh, when I was incumbent up in Harrow. He had a very old Audi, which was slightly miserable. And he had a very expensive alarm fitted to it, far more expensive probably than the car. And the trouble was that this alarm was so hypersensitive, if the squirrel happened to brush the tire with its tail, it would go off. And I had small children at the time. And so if he parked his car out of my, outside my house, I remember just, you know, I'd, I'd sort of feel my stomach turn as I walked into the door because I knew what the evening was going to be like. I knew my kids were going to be woken up throughout the night. His security system was working perfectly. It was just far too sensitive. And, and the work we do with anxiety is not about eradicating anxiety because anxiety is not actually an illness. Depression is an illness, but anxiety is a natural and healthy phenomenon of being. It keeps us safe. What we need is the right amount of anxiety and not a hypersensitive anxiety system. So we have to work to reduce the anxiety that we feel. And we can do that in a number of different ways. And I'm going to conclude with this and then we'll have a chance to ask a few questions. So three, a, a few techniques uh, that we might do. The, the first thing to do is to recognize the problem that we're facing, as in identify the fact that we have got a diff different sorts of worries. So floating worries and solvable worries. And we need to appraise those worries in different ways. And we do that by using something called thought record charts. So if you're struggling with worry and anxiety, I'd encourage you to take the next two weeks and privately on a journal or within the notes application on your phone, note down at the end of the day for five minutes, the main worries that you've noticed you've been ruminating on during the day. Over the course of a two-week period, you'll be able to get a general idea of the sorts of themes that you tend to worry about. And that will really help you then to appraise the difference between the and, the automatic negative thought, and something that genuinely needs your attention. 
You can also always ask yourself the embarrassed question. Do you feel confident asking your doctor or a friend for a resolution to the thing you're worrying about? If you feel a twinge of anxiety or embarrassment about doing that, it's normally because you're facing a, sol- a floating worry, not a solvable one. So the embarrassment question is important. Knowing yourself gives you the strength and the tools to begin to work with the worries themselves and the process of worry rather than getting lost in trying to undo the worries. The second one is about making new appraisals. Now, making new appraisals is a really important CBT technique. And this is really about asking yourself whether or not the conclusion you're making about the worry that you're worrying about is really as realistic as you believe it to be. So the key point here is that you might have an intrusive worry about, for example, having a brain tumor, as I mentioned earlier, but you might offer yourself a number of alternative theories. One is that you bumped your head whilst you're asleep, which you don't believe at all. One is that actually you're dehydrated, which is possible. The other one is that you've had a really stressful day. Strangely, you can change your neuroplasticity, that is the way in which your brain is wired, by offering yourself a different interpretation of the same experience. And that fundamentally disempowers the zero to hero approach that we have to worry, where one minute we're fine and the next minute we're in worry agony. The third and final strategy I want to offer you with is, is one that's focused more on bringing yourself to a place of peace aside from the worries you're experiencing. So three strategies. One is visualization. That is going to a place psychologically which brings you a sense of peace and serenity. It might be iconography. It might be the churchyard. It might be a run. It might be going fishing. It might be needlepoint. Whatever it is, go there in your mind and have a script which you engage with when you're beginning to feel anxious. Secondarily, aggressive relaxation. When your body is relaxed, your brain often follows suit. So finding tension in your body and working to tense and then release that tension through progressive muscle tension and relaxation exercises. Thirdly, breathing. So there's two nervous systems in the body. There's the sympathetic and then there's the parasympathetic nervous system. When we're experiencing high levels of adrenaline, our sympathetic nervous system is running roughshod over our lives. But you can practically stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which brings you down by breathing in a way where your out-breath is longer than your in-breath. So you might try the 7-11 technique, where you breathe in for 7 through the nose and you breathe out for 11 through the mouth. There's also box breathing, which is in for 4, hold for 4, out for 4, hold for 4. Both those techniques have a really powerful effect when you join them together with aggressive muscle relaxation and visualization. And the final point of that is something called mindfulness technique, which again you can do as a Christian, I call it present contemplation, where rather than escaping your worry, you hold your worry in your hand in an imaginary way without judgment. Now, I like to think that Jesus taught on this when he talked about watchfulness, which seems to me biblical mindfulness. He mentions the virgins with the lamps. The virgins held the lamps, but attended to the needs of the house. They didn't just focus on the lamp. They had the lamp in their hand, but they had to attend to the needs of the household as a whole. They weren't expected just to look at the lamp. You can hold your worry in your hand and attend to it without judgment, and then turn your attention to the things that really need your attention. And you can find more about those techniques uh, on our site, minusoffoundation.org, if you'd like to find out more. Um, I don't want to to kind of take up any more of your time, but I want to kind of give you a taster for the fact that actually you can resolve a significant part of the agony of worry by using some of these techniques and getting to know your own worry profile more effectively. Mm-hmm.